Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And we have a returning guest, a favorite guest, um, Dr. Matt Harris with us. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? Oh, we are good. We are very excited to dig into this topic today. Landon, why don't you quickly go through his bio? As I said, he's a returning guest. Uh, but for those of you that aren't familiar with Dr. Harris, let's just read the bio really quick. Yeah, and we probably ought to say what we're talking about today um, is uh, the founding fathers in religion as President's Day is coming up. Uh, <laughs> and so we wanted to introduce that. That's why I'm dressed so patriotically. That's and... <laughs> true. We are dressed patriotically. Exactly. We are going to dive in after the bio into just sort of what almost appears to be sort of a culture war um, as different people try to talk about whether we are a Christian nation here in the United States or are we a secular republic? And there are definitely very strong opinions on both sides as people use this to kind of inform how they envision you know, the founding of our country, the lives of our founding fathers, and what it means for all of us today. So go ahead with that bio, Landon, yeah, and then we'll dig got, right in. We've got the perfect guest to go over this. Uh, Matthew, <laughs> yeah, Matthew L. Harris is, in fact, you might even say he wrote the book on this. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> we'll literal. That. <laughs> Matthew L. Harris is professor of history and director of legal studies at Colorado State University, Pueblo. His many books include Watchmen on the Tower, Ezra Taft Benson, and the Making of the Mormon Rite, the LDS Gospel Topic Series, A Scholarly Engagement, Thunder from the Right, Ezra Taft Benson and Mormonism of Politics, The Mormon Church and Blacks, A Documentary History, Zebulon Pike, Thomas Jefferson, and The Opening of the American West, and The Founding Fathers and the Debate over Religion in Revolutionary America. He received a BA and MA in History from Brigham Young University in uh, Philosophy and PhD also in History from the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs at Syracuse University. Much of Harris's teachings and scholarship explores the intersectionality of religion and law, race and religion, civil rights, and right-wing extremism, particularly among religious groups. A prize-winning professor, he teaches classes on church and state, civil rights, and constitution, and American religions. His classes have been broadcast on C-SPAN, and his research has been covered by variety of media outlets, including the Religious News Service, C-SPAN, Salt Lake Tribune, Long Reads, and others. In addition, he has appeared on numerous podcasts discussing his research on religious disaffection, right-wing extremism, and religion and civil rights. Uh, one of those podcasts includes ours that he's been on before. That's uh, right. Cover things. So uh, <laughs> welcome back, and we certainly enjoy getting to learn from uh, Dr. Harris. That's right. Well, great. Thank you, Landon, Rebecca. It's really, it's nice to be here again and talk about uh, a subject that I've been thinking about for probably most of my adult life. And having grown up in the church and having grown up in a very conservative home, I was taught that this is a Christian nation. The founding fathers were Christian men. And as I grew older and began to began to study this topic, I recognized that it was far more complex than what I was taught growing up. And maybe in the next several minutes, we can talk about this complexity. And, and um, what I want to do today is to talk about evidence. I'm going to really ground a lot of the discussion today about evidence, how we know what we know. And I want to share some slides with your viewers about the Constitution, about the founders and their particular religious beliefs. So, and I think it's appropriate to do this for president's sake. So that's great. 
Um, as we begin today, uh, just to highlight a couple things. Um, so I have a, a book coming out uh, called Second Class Saints, and it's about the church and African-Americans and the backstory to the priesthood band, how it was lifted, and also the legacy, the painful legacy of this band. So it may interest some folks. And then on the far right, uh, pun intended, I have a uh, book that I did not long ago on Ezra Taft Benson, the influential Mormon and government leader. And then in the middle is a book that I did years ago um, with a distinguished religion scholar, uh, Thomas Kidd from at Baylor University. Uh, Tommy is a distinguished scholar of religion. And he and I uh, were in a coffee shop one day at a conference and we were having breakfast and we talked about that we didn't have there wasn't a book that really covered the founding and religion to our liking. And there it's it's been so politicized, this topic. And because it's been so politicized in these culture wars, as you mentioned, Rebecca, uh, Tommy and I decided that we needed to do a book together that we could share with our students. And this is the book that, that we came up with. And it's a series of documents with um, interpretive essays from both uh, Tommy and myself that talks about the complexity of the founding. And so this is this book. It's used in college classes across the United States, including my own at Colorado State University Pueblo. My students read this and they we all learn together. All right. So as I begin today, I want to talk about how the founding has been misinterpreted by both uh, conservatives and liberals. And there's a lot of garbage on the internet I found years ago when I put this book together. And this is one of the biggest uh, spurious claims that I found from those who argue it's a Christian nation. And this is from the great founding father, Patrick Henry of Virginia. Uh, he allegedly said, quote, it cannot be emphasized too strongly. I got to move our screen up so I can read this. There we go. It cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists, but by Christians, not on religions, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. For this very reason, peoples of other faiths have been afforded asylum, prosperity, and freedom of worship here. Now, that sounds great. And I have seen countless uh, folks who argue for this Christian nation position, use this uh, quote. The problem is it's not true. <laughs> he didn't say this. And we can trace it back to various people in the 20th century. But if you go back further, um, what you find is there are folks from the 19th century who started to create these, these quotes that didn't exist. And that really leads to a larger question why would people from the 19th century make this stuff up? And the answer is they're clearly trying to shape how uh, Americans and even generations of Americans would view the founding fathers. So from the 19th century, we get a whole bunch of this stuff that gets carried on into the 20th and into the 21st century. And this is just one of many spurious quotes that scholars cannot find the origin uh, but they can trace it back to the 19th century. Here's one from uh, liberals that claim just the exact opposite, that this isn't a Christian nation. 
And this is one that they use that is, I should say it's partially true with the nuance. So this, uh, so this is attributed to John Adams. The government of the United States is in no sense founded on the Christian religion. And for those folks who argue that the founders are atheists or this is a secular republic, this is the one they turn to the most. And I have to say, frankly, when I was researching this Religion and Founding Father book, this is the, this is the one that really, really struck at me. And it's partially true because it leads one to believe that John Adams, our second president, wrote it. The truth is he did not write this. A guy named Joel Barlow wrote it, who was a what we call a deist. We'll talk about deism in just a minute. But it was a treaty in 1797 that the U.S. government had produced um, with a majority Muslim nation in North Africa. And John Adams was present at the time. He signed the treaty, but there is absolutely zero evidence that he knew what he signed or that he read it. And uh, there are some newspaper responses to this treaty that that read it and they freaked out. <laughs> and they would say, they, they, they said, this treaty is trampling on the cross of Christ, read one newspaper. So they were upset because this newspaper editor who wrote this clearly thought this is a Christian nation, and the words in this treaty had clearly contradicted that belief. But anyway, this slide is true. It's, it, it can be traced to a government document. It's a treaty, but it's misleading to suggest that the second president wrote it. And having gone through John Adams's papers many times in, at the uh, Historical Society of Massachusetts, where the corpus of that collection remains today, I found no evidence that 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 President Adams knew what he was signing, that he felt this way. He's got other religious beliefs, but um, anyway. So there it's are... interesting. It's interesting that you bring this up because I had just recently read a book that had quite a few uh, quotes from presidents and. Here it is, right here. <laughs> the uh -oh. government of the United States, uh, exactly that quote. <laughs> so I guess it, without getting too technical, it is a real quote. Unlike the first one I shared mm -hmm. with you by Patrick Henry, which is completely bogus. This is an actual quote, but it's not It's not given to, um, John Adams didn't write it. We know that Joel Barlow wrote it. And we don't know a lot about this document. And I can tell you, I researched the heck out of this thing. I wanted to figure out, did people know this clause was in there? What did they think about it? And I found a few newspapers who commented on this, this treaty. Um, I told you what they said. They were upset. But um, also, too, there are some folks that believe that even though this is in there, they don't dispute the authenticity. They would argue that the U.S. government was just telling this Muslim-majority nation what they wanted to hear. This is dealing with negotiation. Mm -hmm. And don't worry, we're not really Christians in the truest sense of the word in terms of our the founding of our government. So the argument is they were just saying that so that they could produce the desired result with the majority Muslim nation. I mean, you know, that's just an interpretive way of looking at it. And another way of looking at it is, uh, is just Joel Barlow speaking for himself or is he really speaking for the majority of people in the U.S. Senate and the government at the time? So there are lots of ways to look at this. And one of the things that I want to share um, as we'll get into 
is a common pitfall that some folks um, fall into, a trap, if you will, that they fall into when they interpret the founding. And that is they'll read public statements from government documents and they'll say, aha, there you have it. Thomas Jefferson's a Christian or George Washington's a Christian. And the truth is some of those, in, on those occasions, those public expressions contradict what they're saying in private. And one of the things I teach my students is when you see a contradiction like that, I'll ask him, which do you think is the better revealer of what they believe personally? Something that's put out there for public consumption in their role as a government official or what they're saying in private in a, in a letter, for example, that's not meant to be published. And of course, it's the private letter. And then it begs the question, you know, if what they said publicly doesn't really reflect what they believe privately, why would they say it publicly? Well, you know, it's kind of like, <laughs> it's kind of like running for, you know, the Ku Klux Klan, running for public office in the South in the 1920s and not being a member of the Klan, right? It's just what you have to do. And in the 18th century at this time, most of the country are Christians. And the founding fathers, they recognize this. So when they talk about Christian utterances in their public documents, it's not necessarily reflective of their private beliefs as much as a, a commentary on what people want to hear. And the founding and that's fathers- probably, That's probably just as true today because we hear that you yeah. can't be the president if you're an atheist. Right. You would not. You would not win. Uh, so politicians know what they have to say to get the votes, and that doesn't necessarily mean that's the person that they that they really are. I, I agree, and that's why, as a historian, I am so determined when I write on my subjects that I get access to their letters and diaries, and and if they're part of an institution, I want to get their meeting minutes because those are those are private documents that really really reveal what they're thinking. And the public stuff is important too, but it's the private stuff that really lets you know what's on their minds. So anyway, that's these are just two representative examples of how conservatives and, and um, progressives will look at the founding and in fact, in many cases, misread it. But the truth is it's really complex. And as we talked about at the beginning of the hour, um, Landon and Rebecca, that both sides sort of find what they want to find in the founding. They can cherry pick the documents. And when I have my students write on this topic, I, I ask them, they write a paper, was this founded as a Christian nation? I purposely leave it vague. You know, what does that mean even? Does that mean that the U.S. government should privilege one religion? Does that mean that, meaning that there should be public policy uh issues that would favor Christians over Muslims or or Hindus or non-believers? Or does the Christian nation thesis mean that simply there are more Christians in this country than other religious faiths? I mean, what does it mean? And, and in my book, you can really find evidence for both of those positions. But anyway, I want to just walk uh, your your readers or your listeners rather through just a brief, brief history of um, the founding and religion. And during the state constitutions, the country was soaked in Christian symbolism, absolutely soaked in Christian symbolism. And of the 13 state constitutions that Americans wrote after they declared their independence from Great Britain in July of 1776, 
they each wrote new constitutions and they privileged Christianity. And you can see this one here that, um, that Ben Franklin himself had helped to write. We'll come back to Franklin a little bit. This is in the state constitution of um, Pennsylvania. It says that I do believe in one God, the creator and governor of the universe, the rewarder of the good and the punisher of the wicked. And I do acknowledge the scriptures of the Old and New Testament to be given by inspiration. You could not hold office in Philadelphia at the state level in 1776 unless you pledged fidelity to the Christian God. So this is an oath of office that everybody would have to take. And section 10 is where that's articulated. The um, Another famous expression from this era comes from 1786 when the country was putting together a national seal. This is a seal I think most of us are familiar with today. If we ever turn our dollar bill over, we can see something that's really probably strange to most of our eyes. It's a Masonic uh, view. Some of the founding fathers were Masons and uh, some of the Mormon leaders uh, were Masons, which is quite interesting. And What's really fascinating about this, this national seal is the, the, the phraseology and the symbolism. So you've got uh, Anuit Coptus, God has favored our undertakings. And you've got Novus Ordu Seclorum, which is a Latin phrase that means new world order or new order for the ages. And you've got this pyramid which is interesting. It's sort of the, the top third of the pyramid is, is separated from the rest. And the pyramid would represent wholeness or completeness. And the fact that it's separated here at the very top means that this pyramid or this democracy is a work in progress. It is evolving. It is, it is not yet complete. And you can see the Roman numerals here that represent 1776. So I always ask my students, what do you think the I means over this, this discombobulated uh, pyramid or democracy? And of course, it's not hard to determine that God, the all-seeing eye, is overlooking the uh, progress of this democracy. And so, um, and then, of course, this democracy, the founding fathers, you know, they believed it was a new world order. And democracy is something that's really, really unique for this day where you can uh, cede power to people. It's so different than, than the 18th century where in a monarchy, particularly in Europe, power flows from the top down. And now of course, in a democracy, power flows from the bottom up. And it would be just absolutely foreign to any kind of uh, monarchy to be told that they answer to the people because that's not what King George III believed. That's not what King Louis XVI believed. They believed in what's called the divine right of kings. So anyway, this is a new democratic experiment. The all-seeing eye, God's overseeing it. It's a new world order. We're a new order for the ages. So this is the seal in 1786 that they come up with at the Second Continental Congress. And I've just given you a couple of examples of some of the religious symbolism that um, some folks especially those who argue that the founders were atheists or whatever. I mean, that's just clearly not supported by evidence. This is clearly a, a generation that is soaked in Christianity. And it's not just Christianity in general. It's a particular kind of Christianity. It's really, really critical. It's Protestant Christianity. It's not Mormon Christianity. And of course, Mormons don't exist yet. 
But the ethos will, will remain the same in the 19th century. This country favors Protestants, not Jehovah's Witnesses, not Seventh-day Adventists, not Mormons, but Protestants, Not certainly not Catholics. Other than Maryland, possibly, right? Maryland would be the, the <laughs> sole exception, right? And yeah, founded by Catholics in the early 17th century. And then there's another um, colony, Pennsylvania, that forms this experiment. They they privilege Christianity, but they argue that it's okay if you're a Mennonite. It's okay if you're a Quaker. And so they have a much broader conception of what their religious toleration looks like. Well, so this is the 1770s under the Second Continental Congress, where they come up with, um, morphs into the Confederation Congress, as it's called. And religious symbolism is everywhere. And that's in the 1770s, early 1780s. Well, by the time of the U.S. Constitution in 1787, the Constitution that we know today was written in the summer of 1787, starts in May, and it's, um, uh, it's concluded their proceedings in September, four months later. So we have Constitution Day in September. And what happens is, is that you see this metamorphosis that a lot of Americans are not comfortable with. And that is, they read the Constitution for the first time, and they see really only two things in the Constitution that really just unnerves them. And the first one is Article 6, Clause 3, which essentially says that you don't have to hold or, or profess a religious test to, to hold office. Now, people in Pennsylvania, we just talked about a slide where you had to profess your fidelity to Jesus Christ in the Bible. They're upset when they read that there is no um, there's no religious oath. And so I'm thinking of one critic. He wrote in a newspaper. He said that that means that papists and Mahatmans and deists could be elected to public office. Oh, my. <laughs> oh, my. Right. I know. I know. I mean, the, the past is a foreign country to most of us. I mean, today we laugh at this sort of thing. But but a papist, you know. What's a papist? Well, obviously, it's a follower of the Pope, right? Well, and, they still, Catholics, still, yeah, yeah. Biden was, what, the second? Uh, and mm -hmm. that was, it's a big deal that a Catholic yep. be, become yeah, president. Yeah, very yeah. dicey. And when Joe Lieberman ran in 2000 as Al Gore's vice president, he was Jewish and people were, woo, right? Mm -hmm. Mitt Romney in 28 and 2012. Oh, my word. The evangelicals in particular, they went bonkers because he's a Mormon. And John Kennedy in 1960, right? Al Smith in 1928, another Catholic. So this country has a long history of anti-Catholic uh, sentiment. So Papists, Mahatmans, obviously followers of Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad, the great Muslim leader, and then a deist who we'll talk about in just a second. So they thought that the floodgates would, would be open for anybody who wasn't a Protestant Christian to hold public office. And the, the second thing that the Constitution uh, says is part of the Bill of Rights that emerges three years later. So the Constitution was, just to give a timeline here, it was written in the summer of 1787. It was ratified in July of 1788 by the ninth state, and the 13th state will support it in the spring of 1789, and then two years later in 1791, we'll get our first 10 amendments. 
So the Constitution's flawed from the get-go, right? We get we're changing it almost immediately. And most of most folks in this country are aware of the Bill of Rights, even if they don't know exactly what the Bill of Rights means or what's there. But the First Amendment is um, part of the Bill of Rights that gives us our most cherished freedoms of assembly, of speech, of religion. And what's really interesting about the First Amendment is that of the first sentence of the First Amendment, it deals with religion. It's a restriction on what the federal government can do. When they say Congress, they're not talking about our state legislatures. They're talking about the federal government. That Congress at the federal level shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And it's we've been arguing about what it means to establish a religion ever since. And later on in this little presentation, I'll talk about what liberals and conservatives, how they approach that establishment clause differently. But the second part is the free exercise clause that most religious folks don't like to talk about. We just like to talk about the establishment clause. But the second um, part is the free exercise clause simply means that you don't have to believe anything in this country. That's the beauty of this country. You don't have to have any faith or belief. And um, I'm, that's really an interesting uh, comment because most of the country at this time are Protestant Christians. And so anyway, the founding fathers are nodding their hat towards the First Amendment and uh, religious belief. Okay, so what does all this mean? Well, the U.S. Constitution is a godless constitution, according to these two political scientists at Cornell University. They wrote this book that sent the evangelical or, or evangelical Christian brothers and sisters into the stratosphere when it was published back in the 90s. And they're arguing that you, you, don't, you just don't find God or Jesus in the, the founding document itself. And I, I want to just emphasize something. There are a lot of Americans during this era in the 1780s who are not happy about this. They recognize that Jesus is absent. There's no mention of God. It's a vast departure from the state legislature documents. And they're really upset. And some of them refuse to even ratify the Constitution because it doesn't mention God, or as they put it, a supreme being. So I don't want to just sort of make it out that we in the 21st century are quibbling over this. This is a generational thing that's been going on. And other um, Americans in the 19th century will read the founding document as well, and they'll try to uh, amend it by adding a new constitutional amendment, professing that this is a Christian nation and that Jesus Christ reigns as our Lord and Savior. It obviously didn't pass, but this has been a hotly debated topic for a very long time. And it does beg the question, though, you know, if a number of folks are Christian in this country, why didn't it say more about Jesus and Christianity? And there's a couple of good reasons for this. One would be that religion was a state affair, that let the states handle religion. The fed, federal government has nothing or very little to do with that. I'm not persuaded by that argument at all, because our first constitution called the Articles of Confederation, so the one we have today is our second, our first constitution was in existence from 1781 to 1788, and it was flawed from the get-go. That's why it only lasted seven years. But uh, our first constitution was awash in religious sentiments. So I'm not, I'm not persuaded by this idea that they didn't talk about 
religion or Christianity because it's a state thing. Because other federal documents had talked about religion and Christianity before. I am far more persuaded that this document represents the 55 delegates who were there writing it. And some of the more diehard founders, as we would call them, diehard Christians were not at the Constitutional Convention. And I'll give you just two, two quick names. Samuel Adams, which is, he, he advocated for a Christian Republic in his writings. He was not at the Constitutional Convention. And Patrick Henry, who was um, very much a, a very proud Christian, he wasn't there either. So it would have been interesting as a counterfactual experiment, you know, what would happen if Samuel Adams and Patrick Henry and some of their ilk, you know, were there. And I asked my, my colleague or my co-author, co um, Tommy Kidd, whom I mentioned a minute ago is, in, is a strong evangelical Christian. I said, by today's evangelical standards, where you have a, a witness of Christ and you know at some particular moment that you're saved, how many of the founding fathers at the convention could fall into that rubric? And he said, probably just one. And he mentioned Roger Sherman of Connecticut. So anyway, not to say Roger Sherman's the only Christian at the Constitutional Convention, just simply that he was the only one that would really classify today as an evangelical. So a lot of the deists were there um, uh, sharing their sentiments and uh, some of them just didn't really see the need for religion. Um, just tell, tell two quick stories. Somebody approached James Madison at the Constitutional Convention and they asked him, you know, why didn't you, he, he said, um, why don't you, why don't we pray? And they used to pray at the Continental Congress. They used to have a minister come in every day and they would pray. And they asked him, why don't you pray when you're writing the Constitution? And Madison said something. He said, we couldn't afford a minister. I mean, that's complete <laughs> nonsense. A lot of these guys have money. <laughs> complete nonsense. Somebody asked Alexander Hamilton after the convention why they didn't pray. And he said, quote, we forgot. <laughs> Probably more accurate. <laughs> well, it's not. It's not in the sense that, that Benjamin Franklin, we, we um, maybe this is a segue to our, our next slide, but Benjamin Franklin in uh, June, late June of six, uh, 1787, they'd been debating for six weeks at this point, and they ran into a very particular issue that really, really confounded uh, the delegates. And Franklin, of all people, called for a prayer. And um, Madison's notes, James Madison kept notes. You can see them to my left here. Uh, a guy named Max Farrand had compiled these notes, the first three volumes. Farrand was um, a professor I worked for the Library of Congress for a while, and he searched wide and far to find any kind of letter or document that dealt with the Constitutional Convention, and also Madison's notes and a couple of other note takers uh, who were there at the convention who took notes. But Madison's are the best of the, of the records. And so he published them in three volumes in 1911. And then with the bicentennial of the Constitution, so the 200-year anniversary, a uh, Library of Congress scholar named James Hudson um, updated the first three volumes with new stuff they had found since then. So this is what you see on this fourth volume. And if you look in Madison's notes, these first three volumes, on June 18, 1787, uh, Madison or Franklin calls for a prayer. And Madison 
they just he blows it off. They don't even give Franklin the time of day. And clearly, this is not something that the men who are there are concerned about. Anyway, um, I want to make a point that I think is uh, important here, and that is we hear all the time that the founding fathers wrote the Constitution and it's patterned after the Ten Commandments, and that's complete nonsense. <laughs> and the see, I'm trained in history, so evidence is important. And I remember I took some AP U.S. history teachers to Philadelphia several years ago, and we visited um, one of the revolutionary sites that Franklin and George Washington had been to. And the, the docent that day was a very strong Christian woman, and she told my teachers, she said that the Constitution was patterned after the twelve or the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, and I, I try not to, to say anything. I didn't want to embarrass her. But afterwards, when the teachers left, I stuck, stayed behind and I said, where, where do you get that from? She said, oh, it's just true. I said, wait a minute. You saying it doesn't make it true. You know, what evidence do you have? And of course, she didn't have any evidence. And I told her without I, I, not being, you know, adversarial or antagonistic by any stretch. That's not what I want to do. But I said that that's interesting because if you go to Madison's notes here or you go to the 20 plus volumes here to the right that have been published on the ratification of the Constitution, which also reveals the founding fathers' views about religion, you don't find the Ten Commandments anywhere. They're not <laughs> quoting the Bible. So I'm trying to tell this person, please don't say this to the people who come here because it's just simply not supported by evidence. It may be something you believe in your heart. Maybe your minister shared this with you. That's fine. But you presenting it as fact is much different than you presenting it as belief. And th the truth is, if you want to know what the founding fathers uh, think about religion and um, the Constitution in particular, these are the two sets of documents you have to go to. And any scholar who writes on the U.S. Constitution today, uh, on the convention, I should say, these are the two staples. Anyone who writes on this topic will go to these two sources. And I have to say I own all of this. My wife wasn't very happy when I bought them. <laughs> They're not cheap. <laughs> and But um, I don't know about these on the right. I don't think these are online anywhere. I, in fact, I'm pretty sure they're not because it's an inexpensive undertaking. They, they, this is like a 45-year project to do this. But you can get these notes here, I think, at the Library of Congress online for free. So people can go search James Madison's notes and see what they're talking about. It's it's worth doing. It's kind of fun. Can I ask you a question, Matt? Um, Absolutely. When, when you said that uh, it was written mainly by deists or a lot of the people at the Constitutional Convention were deists, yet the country as a whole seemed to be fairly Protestant Christian, what do you make of why so many deists were sent as representatives of these Protestant communities? Well, good question. So when you are, so it's the state, the states that will send their delegates and the men who were sent to Philadelphia in May of 1787, they were the who's who of American politicians of the day. And so um, the United States had just defeated the largest military empire in the world. And even though George Washington is not a constitutional guy, this is not saying he's stupid because he's not, but 
he's not reading constitutional theory like James Madison is or John Adams or Thomas Jefferson. I mean, these guys are the quintessential nerds. I mean, they're immersing themselves in ancient republics and ancient constitutions. I mean, Washington would be yawning at all this stuff. He's not interested in any of that stuff. And even though Jefferson and Adams were not at the Constitutional Convention, they certainly weighed in on what ought to be said and talked about. But anyway, um, so they chose Washington because he led the country to victory against the largest, the greatest empire of the 18th century. So his leadership was paramount. He had to be there. And they elected him the president of the convention. And James Madison, um, his neighbor, little guys, like five foot four inches tall, contrast sharply with Washington, who is about six foot, 220 pounds. I mean, um, 215 pounds. So Washington at six foot, 215 is a massive man for that day and age when the average height and weight was much you know, smaller. So uh, Madison went because he too was famous in politics in Virginia. And so he represented Virginia. And, then, um, and that's how it went down the line. Uh, the oldest delegate was Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin from Philadelphia. And uh, Franklin was one of the few people at the convention who had an international reputation. He was one of those guys that would go to Europe and he would hobnob with all the literati, David Hume and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and these famous philosophers um, and economists in Europe. And so it was important that, and because of his scientific accomplishments, that's why he was known, it was important that Dr. Franklin go, even though he wasn't really going to be weighing in the minutia about the separation of powers or whatever it is. So there were people that needed to go because of their, their leadership, their experience. And there are people, I wanna just say something I think is really important to know that we, we place these guys as sort of on pedestals, you know, Mount Rushmore's. The truth is that some of these guys were really, really intelligent. Their intellects were broad and far reaching. But the truth is also that there's a whole bunch of mediocrities here. There's a dude from Delaware named Jacob Broom. You ever heard of him? No, because he's not worth hearing from, right? He's one of the younger founding fathers and he contributed virtually nothing to the proceedings. There are dandies and fops and snuff addicts who go, people with tempers. I mean, they're just common people, right? We've deified the founders in, in so many ways. Well, we, we noticed one of the things was that the, the deists seemed to be doing most of the work. Because <laughs> uh, when you when you start naming the names of the people who are doing most of the work, they're the deists. And I don't know if that's because they're the most educated and they have the most foreign uh, knowledge, which usually makes you less uh, religious when you have knowledge of, you know, different cultures and you're more educated in those type of things. So I was wondering if that's maybe why so many deists uh, were there. Yeah, yeah. The Ds are, I think it's fair to say most of them are educated. They're reading, they're reading European philosophers. And for your your um viewers who may not know what deism is, it's a it's a it's a philosophical belief during what we call the Enlightenment. This is after the medieval ages. The Enlightenment runs from depending on who you are, maybe 1450 AD to 1800. It's called the Great Age of Reason, where there's a proliferation of, you know, experimentation in science, physics, and other disciplines. And um, a lot of the founding fathers are deists. 
And the deism is just simply that God created the universe by natural law or laws, and that he wound it up as a big clock. And he watches, he takes a step back from his creation, and he watches it unfold, or as this little uh, wind-up clock uh, illustrates, it just sort of ticks and ticks and ticks, and God takes a very distant look. And God is not a personal God in the, to these deists. He doesn't care who wins the Super Bowl tomorrow. <laughs> he, <laughs> he doesn't care about BYU football, that's clear. He No, all right, I'll stop. <laughs> Um, but anyway, he doesn't care who you marry. He doesn't care what you had for dinner last night. He's a very distant and impersonal God. And um, there's only one person that really self-identifies as a deist. This is really interesting. It's Ben Franklin. He writes in his autobiography, he talks about he's reading deist literature. You know, I love this stuff. This is great. He calls himself, quote, a thoroughgoing deist. And Washington and, and Jefferson do not say that because deism is a dirty word, but they certainly embrace deist principles as I'll, I'll just go through those guys in just a sec. But anyway, deism is not a popular term. And so you don't really see a lot of them, you know, professing their belief in deism because the country is Protestant Christian. But I think it's really important that, that um, you know, when some people say that this is a, you know, the founding fathers were or atheists or non-believers. I mean, I think they're sort of drifting over into deism, but that's clearly not the case. They are not atheists. They do believe in a God, but he's just a different kind of God. And this is a God that gave people, you know, reason and intuition to solve their own problems. And I'm reminded of a time that I went to um, the first public uh, hospital in the United States. It's in Philadelphia. It's a museum today, but Ben Franklin founded it. And what's really interesting is that it was a hospital for what they call lunatics. Today, we would, that's a terrible term, but today it deals with people with mental health issues. And what was interesting is, I remember taking my kids to this hospital and you could see there were shackles on the wall and there was just a mat. And so some of the patients would be shackled and they would just sit there on the mat. I mean, what a horrible existence. They couldn't walk. They couldn't really go anywhere without being unshackled. And the idea was, I asked my kids, I said, why do you think they're shackled? And, and you know, they didn't quite know. Well, the idea was, is that some of the hospital personnel could go by and look through the bars and sort of look at the, the behavior of the person who was a lunatic or somebody with these mental health issues. And through human unaided reason, they could maybe come to a solution about what was ailing them. I know that sounds crazy and cruel and inhumane to us today, but that's what somebody of the Enlightenment thought, that God had given you these reasoning powers to understand somebody's um, behavior. So, so I think it's really important that, that some of the people who push back on this deism argument, they'll say, oh, Washington and Franklin, they never self-identified as deists or whatever. And that's just simply not the case. Franklin did, as I mentioned, but Washington and Jefferson exhibited just about every belief in deism, and they're reading deist people. And that's really um, important because we have a strong idea. We know what they're reading. They left behind, you know, plenty of documents and letters. And does that help, Landon? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that, yeah. that was kind of age of reason was the thing I was going after. Right. Of course, we know Thomas Paine was a. Uh, I guess we don't count him as a founding father, but he was a. Very much a deist, if not an atheist. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. And 
that's that, that's another whole issue, right? Who do we count as founding fathers? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a do we count? Is it just the guys who wrote the Constitution or signed the Declaration, or are they the guys who worked in state politics? Are they the guys that worked at the Confederation Congress and before that the Continental Congress? I mean, we have to always define our terms. Mm -hmm. So, all right, let's talk about just the, the founding fathers and their beliefs for a moment. And I think this, and I'm going to share some personal experiences. This is obviously uh, Thomas Jefferson um, on the left here, our third president. And if you've never been, you guys ever been to Monticello before? Love it. Landon. Yeah, Isn't beautiful that, place. Oh yeah. my gosh. Rebecca, if you haven't been, go. I haven't been. And I took an entire semester, a humanities course on that. And I still have never visited. Isn't that terrible? Um, but I learned huh. an awful lot about it. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. If, well, I would say, I, I've always said this to, to people, you, you get layers at Monticello, meaning you don't even have to like history to enjoy this building because you can fall in love with the architecture. You can fall in love with the, the botanical gardens. You can fall in love with the paintings. If you like art history, there's so much in it. The inventions, he had all these little inventions of things he would use that were so unique. <laughs> he's, a, he's a man of the enlightenment. Yeah. Right? yeah. You can understand the world, the natural world around you through human unaided reasoning. You didn't need the Catholic Church or you didn't need your minister to interpret the other world for you. You could actually reason your way through it. Which leads me to my next question um, or thought that uh, an experience I had years ago going to Monticello. I've taken high school teachers here for years and you walk into this beautiful, his beautiful home and you go into the, the parlor where there's there are paintings everywhere. And I knew that Jefferson had said this quote. He said, the three greatest people who ever lived. So he named in his private writings, the three greatest people who ever lived. And they're right here. This is in his parlor. Francis Bacon, the great Enlightenment uh, thinker. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton, the great Enlightenment thinker. We've, you know, basic Newtonian physics. And then John Locke, the great English philosopher. And what I've told teachers over the years is, I would say, what what do you, or I've, what I asked him was, what, what do you think is missing here? Yeah, Three Jesus. people who ever lived, Jesus Christ. <laughs> that is extraordinary, right? If you are, if you are the evangelical Christian that some of our Christian brothers and sisters like to claim that Jefferson is, that would be absolutely blasphemy to think that Jesus of Nazareth would not be there. Now, I don't want to mislead anybody. There are there, there, there is religious iconography there. There's there are pictures of, of God and Jesus and angels. I mean, Jefferson is a man of the world. He's very cosmopolitan. And he was aware of his own predilections. When you walk in where my arrow's at, you walk in the front gate here, the parlor. Um, this is where people would come and visit, and the house servants would say, Okay, wait here, I'll get Mr. Jefferson. Now, most people probably today, you know, we don't do that anymore. We call first. Can I come over? You know, but in those days, you know, they're on horse and buggy, right? And of course, as an 18th century gentleman with means, he was expected that he might feed his long-suffering uh, travel guest or maybe even offer them lodgings. But when you walk in the hall here, you could see maps from Lewis and Clark. You could see furs. You could see Native Americans. You could see pictures of grizzly bears from the Northwest. They don't have grizzly bears in Virginia. So these were all, you know, conversational pieces because Jefferson always liked to remind people 
of how cosmopolitan he was in his thinking. And anyway, so, but these three guys right here, Jesus is missing. And I can't imagine that any, you know, committed Christian would, would claim that there are three great people who are above and beyond Jesus. So anyway, that's uh, really, uh, I think, striking. So Jefferson, as a man of the Enlightenment, um, decided in his later years when he retired, so he's no longer the president, he decides that he, he wants to dabble in the Bible. And uh, this is... Yeah, he this edited is, it, didn't he? Yeah, he not only <laughs> edits it, he cuts it in half. <laughs> I'm I mean, on board with that. <laughs> he cuts it in half. He cuts out all of the Old Testament. He doesn't like that God. That God's angry all the time. He does mean things to people. And Mormons, nothing we don't do today, we pretty much just ignore. It. Exactly. Oh, we cut it out, but we ignore it. We do it. cut it out. Yeah. You know, right. just, just to draw a contrast, Latter-day Saints are not fundamentalists with the Bible. That is to say that um Mormon, the Mormon canon revelation is always evolving. And that's the whole purpose, right, of Mormon prophets. They can receive prof revelation and they can change things. That's the beauty, I guess, of having an open canon. But if you're an evangelical, this is a closed canon. You don't mess with the Bible. You don't cut it up like this. Or if you're Joseph Smith, a critic of Joseph Smith, you don't make a revised version, right? So this is anathema to most um, evangelical Christians. And so Jefferson decides that he doesn't like the Old Testament, so he just cuts it out. And he doesn't like a lot of the New Testament either. And so... <laughs> Uh, I always ask my students, some of whom are religious, some of whom are not, but I will say something like, you know, what do you think he cut out of the New Testament? And they'll say, well, he probably didn't like the miracles. And I said, absolutely. They make no sense to human reasoning how you can feed a multitude of people with a handful of loaves of bread, right? Or how you can, you know, pick up some mud, spit in it and rub it on somebody's eyes to make them whole again. I mean, that's just that's that's just so crazy to think to to reason that way. So Jefferson thought that those kinds of miracles were just ridiculous. And he doesn't think that Jesus is divine. He thought that that was a concoction by St. Paul. But he does think Jesus is a moral person. He's an actual person. But but the whole divinity thing where he uh, died and rose to heaven on the third day and was resurrected, that that's just pure fiction to to Jefferson. So this is what he did. He he used um, a few languages to cut and splice things that he liked, and he focuses on sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. He thought that the Sermon on the Mount was a beautiful way to construct a new government. It's a beautiful way to uh, instill a social morality in uh, these new uh, Democrats, small d people who could live under a democratic republic, as it was called. And uh, one of the things that he really liked was Jesus's teachings on forgiveness. That, you know, what Jesus said, if somebody forgives you, master, how many times should I forgive him? You guys know, Jesus said 70 times seven, mm -hmm. you know, forgive your enemies infinitely, right? And that's a stark contrast from the Old Testament that if something happened to you, you know, if they were to punch you, punch you back harder. <laughs> that's not a good <laughs> blueprint for a new nation, right? Yeah. So Jefferson... Uh, he cherry-picked the passages that he liked, and he, he cut out the Old Testament and a bunch of the New Testament, and you can see the result. It's a thin little book. <laughs> and Again, I like that. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember seminary where yeah, you had... Yeah. 
<laughs> I do Back too. in the day when you had to read the whole dang thing, or at yeah. least say that you did. <laughs> I do too. I I remember a seminary teacher I had, bless her heart, she was a nice person, but not trained, not even remotely qualified yeah. to teach youth the Old Testament. So trying to mutter through what these things meant, and it was difficult. This is a picture I took a couple of years ago at the Library of Congress. Um, they they took, so this is of Jefferson's Bible. And when he died in 1826, he, um, he passed this on to, he got left in the hands of his granddaughter, ultimately. And in the, I think, late 19th or early 20th century, the granddaughter donated it to the Library of Congress. And because it was so brittle, now this is, let me just pause. This was a secret. Nobody knew about this for, except Jefferson's family. Oh, really? Okay. He was not trying to publish this, make money. This is just the, the, the inner workings of a mind, a very active mind about curiosity about the world. And so he did this in his retirement. And he, uh, so the world didn't know about it until the, the granddaughter uh, donated it to the Library of Congress. And after all these years under lock and key, they decided that they were going to put it out for a display at the Library of Congress. And so I just happened to be in town that day with some high school teachers when they brought it out. And this is under a glass case. You can't really see from this image. But this is what it looks like. You can see right here where my arrow's at. He cut out passages here. And he would splice them, throw them in the trash. I mean, he really created this eclectic Bible. And to call it a Bible is really misleading. It's really, you know, the, the musings of, of, of an old man at Virginia is really what it is. <laughs> anyway. Again, I would read that over the Bible. I wonder if somebody ought to do this with the Book of Mormon, you know, you just kind of go through and cut out what you don't like. And, you know, I like that like? idea, too. <laughs> what would it look like? Right. So, by the way, you're. Anyone can buy a copy of this today. I have two copies at my office at the university, two different versions of it. And, but it's not esoteric. It, it, is it called the Jeffersonian Bible? Is that what it's called? What, what's? Uh, it's called the Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, okay. Okay. I think, Landon, one of the copies or editions I have, it, it might say Jefferson Bible, but this is really the official title. Okay. Yeah. Again, this is not meant for public consumption. This is just what he did in private. And the official title for those that are just listening is The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Yes. To me, that's kind of a mixed message because here he is celebrating the morals and life of Jesus of Nazareth. I can't even say it. Nazareth. Yet, if he were a true, true Christian, he probably would not dare ever tamper with the sacred holy book of God, right? The Bible. So <laughs> it's kind no, of interesting. You're right. I think that's one of the excuse me, the criticisms of the prophet uh, Joseph Smith that exactly. would say, you tampered with the Bible. How mm -hmm. dare you? Mm -hmm. You're not a prophet because a prophet right. would never do that. Right. And the, the canon is closed, they would say, which I always yes. find comical because the Bible is a series of books compiled over many decades. And but yet, you know, some folks who aren't trained or observant or informed, they just think that somehow it's one book produced by, you know, and and this is very much a deist thinking because he doesn't believe in the miracles. He doesn't believe that God would send his own son because he's a very remote God that's not interacting with the, the human beings. Yes, correct. And I think a lot of our, our Christian brothers and sisters mess this up because 
Jefferson talks about Jesus, uh, I wouldn't say a lot in his writings, but some. But he looks at Jesus like he looks at any other moral leader. I mean, he, he feels very conversant quoting Jesus to a friend, and then the next sentence he's quoting Socrates. Hmm. He thinks they're moral people. But the, the linchpin is he thinks this whole divine stuff is nonsense. And he wrote his nephew a letter. And recall what I said earlier. If you really want to know what they believe, look at what they say in private. And his letter or his nephew, a guy named uh, Peter Carr, was having some issues with Christianity. He wanted to know what his old uncle thought. And <laughs> Jefferson was never one to hold back. And he wrote Peter Carr and he said, you know, the atonement of Jesus Christ is hocus pocus. You know, it's superstition. So he doesn't believe in any of this stuff. But yet uh, so many uh, of our Christian brothers and sisters, they'll read something that he says about Jesus and they'll say, aha, he's a Christian, without yeah. recognizing that he views Jesus as a moral man, but not as the, the son of God who died for our sins. That's a huge, huge difference. It is. Um, all right. So a couple couple thoughts um, as we'll move on to the next one here. But this is probably the most um important articulation, at least publicly, of Jefferson's thinking. And that is when he wrote the Declaration of Independence in uh, June of 1776, just a month before they debated it, he borrowed heavily from this English philosopher, John Locke, who is not a contemporary of Jefferson. Locke was a uh, prominent Enlightenment philosopher in the late 17th century in England, but he was one of the most popular philosophers of the day. And a lot of the founding fathers were extremely conversant with all of his writings. And if you study political theory or political philosophy or history today, you'll, you'll run up against John Locke. Uh, psychologists also study him. But for our purposes today, um, Jefferson in the Declaration, so this is the document to the right here. Jefferson in the very first paragraph, he calls it the law of nature and nature's God. That is very deistic in its thinking, that there is this, the laws of nature that God had created. And once he created them, just like the, the watch metaphor, he stands back and watches his creation. And as I've shared with some of my evangelical and Christian friends and Mormon friends before, this is not how a Christian talks about God, right? It's the savior of the world. It's Jesus mm -hmm. of Nazareth. It's not nature's God. And so, and, and to argue that it is nature's God would be clearly uh, remiss. And I had a friend years ago who was ready for this argument, right? He said, aha, nature's God. Okay, I heard you. But what do you make of the last paragraph where it talks about providence? Like, you know, like he got me or something. And I said, well, that's interesting. Providence is used by both Christians and deists. The problem is, is that the last paragraph of the Declaration was not written by Jefferson. It was written by one of the more Christian uh, people on the committee. And so there are there are different drafts of the Declaration. If you look at the first draft that Jefferson himself created, and you look at the other draft, the final draft that was uh, accepted by the Second Continental Congress, they're worlds apart. In fact, so much so, Jefferson was angry that they had tampered with his, as he put it, his hallowed prose. He didn't like all the edits. But the last paragraph where it talks about providence is not his doing. It was, that's just not Jefferson. So 
And I always like to say that the declaration in some small way, it's a little uh, bifurcated in its views on religion because the first part represents Jefferson's views of the law of nature, nature's God. And the last paragraph represents somebody else on the committee. Um, all right, I'll speed this up a little bit, but um, Franklin is uh, one of those interesting enigmas with religion. He talks about God a lot, mentioned that when he was a younger man, he identified as a deist and um, makes his money in the printing business, selling slave ads, which is interesting because he lives in Quaker, Pennsylvania, and he wasn't a Quaker, but he identified with some of their beliefs that all men had this inner light including slaves. And if you believe that, then one ought to free one's slaves. So Franklin freed um, his slaves early on, and he made a lot of money in the newspaper business by uh, selling slave ads. So even though he didn't like slavery personally, he made money by selling ads. Just like we, our newspapers need ads today to survive and thrive. It's the ads that made him his money. And so as a younger man, after he made his money in the newspaper business, he became a scientist that afforded him the time to experiment in these enlightenment, you know, uh, pursuits. And before he died in 1790, so he died just two years after the Constitution was ratified. So he wasn't around to see it, its fruition. And uh, somebody asked him, you know, he said, Dr. Franklin, We've been, you know, you're the most famous man in this country, and we want to know, do you believe in Jesus? And the person who asked him was a uh, a Calvinist minister. So it wasn't just any old random person. It was a minister. And, and they figured that he was about to die. And if he truly was a Christian, he would go on record, you know, sort of a deathbed confession, maybe. But I can only imagine the Calvinist minister came away profoundly disappointed because what you see in this slide is what Franklin says. And I'll just, I won't read it all, but I'll just, well, let me read the last couple, few sentences. But he says that he, um, well, the first part he talks about, he believes in Jesus and his morals. But, so that's kind of Jeffersonian. But then he says that he has some doubts as to Jesus's divinity. He's not sure if he's divine. I mean, Jefferson was sure that he wasn't. Franklin says, eh, I'm not sure about it. And he says that I have never studied it before. That's not true. Everybody in this generation thinks about Jesus. So I don't believe that for a minute. But he said, I've never studied it before. And I think it needless to busy myself with it now when I expect soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble. <laughs> you got to love mean, Franklin. That's a great answer. <laughs> I mean, how, how do you respond to that, right? <laughs> But but Franklin does believe in God. This is from his autobiography. He does definitely believe in God, and um, but it's a deist God. There's no question. This is um, a couple of things about uh, Franklin. He wrote an autobiography. It's one of the greatest pieces of American literature, uh, I think, this country's ever produced. It's the quintessential rags to riches story. And what's fascinating about this right here is that in the autobiography, Franklin articulates a list of 13 virtues. And many of the Enlightenment, like Franklin, they believed in perfection, not in the Christian sense or not in the Mormon sense that you can perfect yourself and you have to always do your call, your church calling to the, you know, that sort of thing. Clean the church. Clean the church <laughs> or that. God will punish me <laughs> or whatever. I won't get some blessing if I don't do this right. or that. 
Franklin, you know, would find that silly and absurd, that sort of thinking. And Franklin argued that people ought to be perfected, but it was the person themselves that would do the perfecting. It wasn't in Jesus Christ. It wasn't in his atonement that makes us one with our maker again. It was in following these 13 virtues, if you wanted to perfect yourself. And you can just see some of them here about, you know, temperance, don't drink too much. Sincerity, be sincere in your truth. And there's some don't gossip. This is a fun one. You know, be chaste, which is interesting since he fathered a bastard child. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, he had goals to be chased, I guess we're saying. Whether he met them we or not. Fall short. <laughs> we can always hope and aspire, right? And uh, imitate Jesus and Socrates. What, what's funny about this, I wish I, I probably should have put this slide up is that he kept a calendar of how well he was doing on any given day with these 13 virtues. And uh, there's a calendar, you know, chastity. There were a couple of days during the week where he didn't do so well. <laughs> one of my students said once, uh, he said, well, maybe that's when William was born. <laughs> but the idea would be that, you know, man is the measure of all things. Man can perfect himself. And that is certainly far into Protestant Christianity at this time. Um, have you guys seen this one before? Absolutely. Oh, in, in my garage right now. In your garage. <laughs> was it once in your house, though? It was once in the house. It's That's, now been moved. <laughs> it's in every house, every Latter-day Saint household I've ever walked into, I think. It's... Uh, it's not only there, but it's usually prominently displayed. They love this picture. If I if I could, I'm not going to do it, but I could show you my, you'll see all my research notes in my office is a mess. But to my left over here, I have a massive picture of this right here. You do. You see? had it for a long time, Rebecca. So yeah. you're spot on. No, I mean, it's a beautiful picture. And yeah. I understand the sentiment and, and everything. I, I mean, it's it's moving. I can see that it's a moving yeah. picture. So yeah, it's false. Yeah, I was just going to say, but, <laughs> you know, whether it's true or not, or whether it's an accurate depiction to me is as a historian is irrelevant to me. I'm more interested. How did this mythology get created? and Why? Mm -hmm. And so the first part is, of course, he's at Valley Forge. It's one of the low points in the American Revolution. We've mythologized Valley Forge because his men don't have proper clothes. They're eating mm -hmm. what they call fire cake. It's just a mixture of flour and water, which is not healthy. And as part of this mythology, of course, what they don't tell you is that Washington gave orders to his men to, to offer to uh, take uh, animals and also food from the local farmers. And when the farmers, he said, we'll pay you after the war. Don't worry. We're not stealing it, but we'll pay you. And of course, the farmers aren't stupid. They know that continental currency is worthless. <laughs> and uh, kind of like Confederate currency during the Civil yeah. War. And so anyway, this is the dirty secret of Valley Forge is Washington decided to, they took the stuff anyway. So they're robbing the countryside, which is sort of demythologizes a lot of the story, right? But anyway, one of the earliest biographers um, of, or the earliest biographer of George Washington was a guy named Parson Weems. And he published a biography in, I think, 1808. And it's in that biography where Parson Weems talks about Washington throwing a coin across the Potomac. And if you've been to Mount Vernon, you'll know that that would be physically impossible. It's a large body of water. It's in that book where uh, we get the cherry tree story. You guys remember that one, you know, where he chops down the cherry tree. 
And it's also in this story where we get a Quaker person named Isaac Potts, who allegedly watches Washington kneel before his maker and pray at Valley Forge. Mm. Now, there's absolutely no evidence for this. Weems is on record as being caught in some of these lies, these fabrications. And he, he, he essentially says that we need a we need we need this country to recognize that this is a Christian country. And so he starts to mythologize the founding to his own liking. And he's not the only one, of course. But part of this mythology is that this is a Christian man here who's kneeling before his his maker to ask to supplicate during this great time of need. And what we know about Washington is just the exact opposite. When we, we, we I made a distinction earlier between um, learning about public expressions of religiosity in private. This is, he's the great, greatest example of that clash, I think. Because in public, he's, um, he's going to church during the Revolutionary mm -hmm. War. This is in Philadelphia. This is the great, wonderful, one of the wonderful churches in this country called Christ Church. And you can see pew number 56 was reserved for George Washington and some of his top lieutenants. But Washington is not religious. I mean, he goes to church because you have to be. Mm -hmm. And I mean, in Virginia in the 18th century, if you ever wanted to be elected into politics, you had to go to church. And of course, we're talking about the Church of England. And Washington, just a couple of quick things about his private religious beliefs. He never takes communion. His wife does, but he doesn't. And he doesn't believe this stuff. He just doesn't. And his wife begs him and he says something like, I'm not worthy enough, but just, just a, a cop out. He's not a believer, at least to the point where he feels like he needs to take communion. And the second thing that I think is uh, instructive is that we have nearly 12,000 pages of Washington's letters that remain today. And he mentions Jesus Christ like once or twice in 12,000 private letters. And he mentions Jesus in offhand ways. And what's really fascinating about that is that if you really believe in Jesus Christ and he is your God and your savior, it seems to me that 12,000 pages of correspondence, you would be talking about Jesus. You'd be bearing witness to his name, his salvation, mm -hmm. his grace. And Washington doesn't do this. And um, anyway, I should tell you how I know this. <laughs> so I, I did research on this and looked myself, but, but in the need to be thorough, as I put this uh, Founding Father book together with Professor Kidd, in the need to be thorough, I reached out to the people who publish Washington's writings at the University of Virginia. It's a multi-volume um, thing, kind of like the papers of Joseph Smith, the, the multi-volumes, same thing. And in fact, the, the good people uh, in Salt Lake who, who did the papers of Joseph Smith, they worked with some of the founding fathers editors because they wanted to be, you know, do it right. And I'm happy to say that I think the Joseph Smith papers project is magnificent. But anyway, um, so the, I reached out to the Joseph, to the George Washington people, and I, I said, you know, I've got this suspicion from my research that, that Washington doesn't mention Jesus much, if at all. Can you confirm that? And they did. They did. You were absolutely right. And I think they're the ones that told me, like, in two letters out of 12,000, they mentioned Jesus.
And I found one of the letters. They shared another one with me. But it wasn't anything really uh, instructive. It was just sort of Jesus in passing. So I think that's really important that, that Washington is um, not a necessarily a private believer like we would want him to be today. But that doesn't mean that he was averse to religion, because a lot of these guys recognize that religion has a public role to play. And even though if they have their own private doubts, uh, I think that's important. The last story I share with Washington is when he died in um, 1790, let's see, he died in 1798, I believe. And he died, he would have died in his third term of, as president had he served a third term. Those days we didn't have term limits like we have today. And so Washington uh, served two terms and decided that he wasn't, um, didn't want to be president anymore. And so he bowed out in 1796. Turns out he dies a few years later. But Washington had thin skin. A lot of people, who, uh, the opposing party uh, criticized him and he just didn't like the criticisms. But anyway, it's a good thing he did retire because he would have died into his third term. Well, the same thing happened to Washington that happened to Franklin. Some of the local ministers, they wanted to know. I mean, this is a guy that's not really talking about religion publicly. And they went to him on his, what would essentially be his deathbed. And they said, you know, what do you believe? And he basically said, eh, it's a, just my business, not yours. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. <laughs> if you really are a believer, you have this right. burning belief that Jesus died for your sins. This is the time to fess up, to share. And the fact that he didn't, I think, speaks volumes about his private belief. Wow, that's um, incredible. I, I was going to add one thing about Valley Forge, about the mythology. I don't know if you've ever heard this um, about the Mormon mythology of Valley Forge, but I was raised with this, that um, George Washington, of course, having a very difficult time in his tent is Moroni, uh, Captain Moroni, who is there guiding him, instructing him, helping him every step of the way. So I feel like he was not only Christianized um, by people, but he was also Mormonized by somehow putting some Book of Mormon figures in there as playing a key role with George Washington, you know, to bring about, you know, America so that Joseph Smith could do what he needed to do. So I think it's just when you have a leader that's that pivotal, people want a piece of him and they're going to put their own narrative on him. But yeah, I don't know if you've ever heard that, but I was raised knowing oh, that Moroni no, I was in his tent. Yes. I've never seen a picture. Maybe I'll have to paint oh. one or commission one. I can hang that up. <laughs> Let me guess, it was a seminary teacher. Yeah, well, it was my mom, and I think I did hear it in seminary also. So, But I love these deathbed stories because I feel like yeah. you, you can't really tell what someone believes, but you can look at, like you said, church attendance. You can look at, do they participate in ordinances? You can look at their writings, and then you can look at what their friends know and th you know, their more closest or intimate associates know about their belief. And that's really how you kind of get to it. So it's interesting that other things are cherry-picked when those four things I just mentioned seem to really prove, even on a deathbed, he's going to go. Eh. <laughs> I think, you know, Mormonism, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is um, is interesting. There's not a lot of new stuff in the early 20th century. That's hard for a lot of Latter-day Saints to hear. Meaning, let me clarify what, what I mean by that. You know, when the prophet, when Joseph Smith prophesies that if a war is going to, to begin, it'll... I prophesied it'll break out in South Carolina. Right. I mean, there's nothing unique about that. Yeah. That's being posted all over the newspapers. 
the South Carolinians are just going bonkers by the 1820s about states' uh, rights. So yeah. there's nothing there. That word of wisdom is not unique. There's a there's a health code temperance movement coursing throughout America in the 19th century. And, and with religion, it's the same thing. There are a lot of Christian groups who are imposing their beliefs on the founding and including that the founding fathers were prophets. They were inspired. Mm -hmm. They wrote a a constitution akin to the revelations of God. So they're sort of mythologizing the founders. And in this mythology, it, it continues well into the 20th century. Um, it's shocking for people to, to hear that we don't put in God we trust on our currency until the 1950s. We don't add one nation under God um, into the Pledge of Allegiance until the 1950s. And these are all layers and layers that are decades after the founders. But I always tell my students, if you want to know what the founders think, we've got to just ignore those layers and go back to the founding documents and see what, you know, what they said. And, and so that's why you get these um, Mormon stories about, you know, Moroni appealing at, appearing at Valley Forge and all of that stuff, because it's part of that mythology that uh, has accrued over time. And maybe now as, as a Latter-day Saint, uh, Latter-day Saints may, may believe that that's fine. Belief is great. Um, but, you know, you play by the rules of evidence, right? And with those faith claims, you can't really deal with those kinds of things. But, but when you're talking about other um, truth claims, like the constitution was founded on the 10 commandments. I mean, we mm -hmm. can, we can, we can verify that, right? We can look at the things they were talking about and thinking about. And anyway, um, as we move along, just want to share this slide here. This is one of the only the only Catholic sign of the Declaration of Independence. And you can see this is very, very Christian in his view. He's not a uh, household name. And therefore, he didn't, to your point, land. And he wasn't one of the... Um, he wasn't one of the famous founding fathers that we think of today. He didn't have the influence of a James Madison or a Washington or a Jefferson. But but there are there's a diversity of belief, and this is just simply one uh, element. All right, let me just show a few more slides, and then we can uh, wrap this up. So talked about a minute ago the First Amendment, where it says that c Congress cannot make a law that um, with respect to the establishment of religion or prohibit the free exercise thereof. And um, a let me let me show a slide. I'm going to come back to this one. The um, today in the 21st century, we have this idea that there's a church, a separation of church and state. I think we've all heard of that. And the the expression, a lot of conservatives will argue that that's not in the First Amendment. And of course, they're right. It's not. And, and the person that really concocted this was uh, Thomas Jefferson. He, I shouldn't say he didn't concoct it. Other people did before him. Roger Williams, the great Puritan, and then even stretching back to Europe, they talked about a wall of separation. But, but Jefferson plays on this um, language. And there was a group of people who wrote Jefferson a letter. They were in Connecticut, and they're Baptists, as you can see here. They're called Danbury Baptists, Danbury, Connecticut. And they were upset that the dominant religion in Connecticut in 1802 were Congregationalists. And they didn't like paying uh, money to support the state-sponsored church, which is Congregationalism. Um, <laughs> it's not hard to realize that if you're a Baptist, you want to pay money to support your Baptist church, not 
one that you don't agree with. And Jefferson had been fighting this sort of thing his entire adult life. And in the Declaration of Independence, he talked about natural rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, also pursuit of uh, property, as John Locke put it. But also a part of Jefferson that gets overlost in life, liberty, happiness was also freedom of conscience. To never have, to not have a, a coercive government authority telling you what to believe. That's a natural right too that God gave you. And so these Danbury Baptists, they wrote him when he was the president and they basically said, you know, help, we, 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 want, we don't want to support the Congregationalists. And Washington responds back and he uses this metaphor that is now famous in our lexicon. It's called, you know, the wall of separation between church and state. But the gist of the letter is, Washington says, I'm so sorry Jefferson. I can't help you that the, 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 the religion is a state function. I'm a federal officer. I can't help you. I'm powerless. And so clearly the Danbury Baptists were um, upset by his response. But Jefferson did say, I'm sympathetic with what you're doing. I just can't help you. And so what we find, if you can fast forward now to 1947, there's a famous Supreme Court case just after World War II where the Supreme Court will apply that metaphor for the first time. They'll apply that wall of church and state metaphor to the state governments. And I don't want to get into too, you know, the, the legalese and all this like I would in my classes maybe. But it deals with the New Jersey statute where uh, a number of parents are being reimbursed for driving their children to Catholic, to parochial schools. And one of the parents complained, arguing that that was a violation of the First Amendment's separation of church and state clause. And the Supreme Court, you can see them here to the left. This is what the court looked like in 1947. Here's the great uh, courthouse in Washington, D.C., where they sit and adjudicate these cases. They argued that it didn't violate the law, so the parents could continue to get reimbursed with public funds, even though they were taking their kids to parochial schools, private schools. And the reason why um, some of the justices thought that it was permissible was because the aid didn't directly benefit the Catholic Church, it benefited simply the parents. But the point is, is that even though the person who brought the lawsuit lost, it really clarified for the first time in American legal history that there was a separation of church and state. And to this day, we've been arguing about how firm that separation ought to be. Are there holes in this wall? Holes meaning, is it okay for the football coach to pray with the team, right? Is it okay for you know a public school teacher to wear a cross or to bring in the Bible on their desk? You know, things like this that we we constantly um, talk about. But so that's how the, the, the separation of church and state began. And uh, to this day, there are really two understandings of the Establishment Clause. And this is very general. But loosely said, the conservative interpretation would be the government cannot support a state-supported religion. It just simply means that the First Amendment says that the, the federal government um, cannot say that you know, Christianity or Islam will be our state religion. That's what uh, a lot of conservatives will argue. Liberals will argue that the government cannot support a state-sponsored religion or give preferential treatment to any particular religious tradition. And 
when when you guys had me on a while back, we talked about white Christian nationalism. And clearly white Christian nationalists who are part of that uh, particular strand of thought, they argue that that the government should indeed give preferential treatment to Christians because this is a Christian nation. And because we've strayed away from that belief, we are where we are today, you know, mired in sin, mired in corruption, mired in whatever. And in order to, to get back to our Christian moorings, we have to return to a biblical-based worldview. So we have these really stark differences about, as conservatives and liberals, about what the separation of church means. And one of the most um, prominent, got two slides left to, to share, and one of the most prominent uh people conveying this idea is an evangelical named David Barton. He's not trained in history. He's uh, uh, he's written a couple of books. This is the first book that he wrote probably 15 years ago, I think, called The Myth of Separation. And just what it says, that there is no myth of separation. The founding fathers never meant for there to be a separation. Look at the First Amendment. It doesn't say church and state there at all. And of course, he's not wrong on that. So his facts are right. His conclusions are wrong. And over time, we've um, looked at the Constitution to discern this idea that there ought to be a separation of church and state. And so David Barton isn't just some guy who wrote a book, you know, a rando book. He's um, he's big in the evangelical movement. He's been on um, big talk shows. I think uh, John Stewart had him on once and embarrassed him. That was fun. And he's had he's been he's testified before Congress as sort of their expert. And one of his calling cards is two things. One is he's collected all these founding documents, which is always kind of funny to me because all the stuff he collected is accessible to everybody. But anyway, but he's he's building himself up to be this expert. And he takes pot shots at people like me, professional historians. And what he says is that those historians, they just quote each other. They don't go back to the original documents and that's absurd. I mean, that's what we do. We we construct arguments about the past through these primary source documents. So Barton has created a straw man that we historians just sort of create the circular argument quoting each other without looking at the real sources. And anybody who's just spends a few seconds in some of the great literature produced by uh, historians will recognize that it's driven by primary source documents including the ones I shared earlier with Max Farron's notes on the Constitutional Convention. So he creates a straw man to sort of prop himself up. And Latter-day Saints, I'm sad to say, um, have latched on to him in recent years. And one of the things that Barton has done is that he created another book or published another book called The Jefferson's Lie, Jefferson Lies, and exposing the myths you've always uh, believed about Thomas Jefferson. And he's trying to push back on this idea that Jefferson is a deist. No, he's a Christian, he argues, and believe that Jesus died for your sins. I mean, completely irrational. It's not supported by the documents. And what Barton did was that, um, I remember just a quick story. I was in Barnes and Noble when this book came out. And I, frankly, I don't spend a lot of time with this garbage because he's not a legitimate historian. He's not, he's just not somebody that uh, I would trust as an authority figure. And anyway, so I, I looked at the book and I, I was glancing through it. Now, my book had already come out. And I so I know this stuff really well. I spent a lot of time working on this book that Professor Kidd and I did. And I just took me, you know, a few seconds in Barnes and Noble 
And um, and I'm, I realized right away that a lot of these quotes are just bogus. They're they're fabricated. They're, he, he's ascribing or ascribing things to Jefferson about Christianity that he didn't say. And once again, the the the, the story here is where did he get these quotes? And Barton got them. He, he didn't make them up. I'm not here to tell you that Barton just sat there in his living room one day making up things. I was just going to ask that question. Did he, no. you know, misinterpret them from another source or did he actually? No, <laughs> no, people, no. He, he, didn't, <laughs> he, he didn't pull a Mark Hoffman. He okay. Wasn't doing okay. That. Clarify that. No, what he did was he's not trained in history, so he doesn't know methodology. He doesn't know source analysis. And okay. so what he did was he just recycled bogus quotes from the 19th century. Mm not realizing they're not authentic. He didn't trace them back to the origins. So the so-called expert, you know, made a very fundamental rookie mistake. And so it took me just a couple of minutes just to pull out several sources, uh, quotes that I knew were bogus. And it's funny, I, I drove home that night and I thought, do I want to write the publisher uh, an email or a letter and say, look, this is, this is fraud. Mm -hmm. You should be aware of this. This is fraud. And <laughs> as I was thinking about this a few days later, this story was published in the Christian Science Monitor. It's recalled. <laughs> so my my colleagues elsewhere beat me to the story, beat me to the punch. They had already complained about the book. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and so the first line says, the book, The Jefferson Lies by author David Barton has been recalled by publishers after numerous complaints of historical inaccuracies. So this is the guy that really, again, is the, the big guru on the founding and religion. And mm -hmm. I had a, uh, I have a, a friend who's an evangelical minister in my community and I invited him to my religion and politics class recently. And <laughs> nicest guy, I really like him a lot, but he's not a scholar. And I, I, I wanted to talk about, you know, what a, I tried to expose my students to different worldviews. And so I told my, my friend, I said, uh, I said, Pastor Greg, talk about um, what it means to advance a biblical worldview in, in, in school, education, and politics. You know, what does that mean for your, your faith community? Anyway, so he said the things I expected him to say, and then he appealed to David Barton as the expert. And my students just let out an audible gasp <laughs> because we talk about Barton. And uh, it, it, I have to say they were respectful, but it wasn't pretty. I mean, they they pushed back hard. He wasn't expecting that. And uh, he told me afterwards, as we finished, he said, wow, it's clear they know a lot more about this topic than I do. And I made a joke. I said, it's because I read my book. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, it, Isn't it true that Tim Ballard's an expert on uh, the founding fathers and the yeah. Constitution? Oh, Don't yeah. get me started, Landon. He, he leads <laughs> tours and things. Absolutely. He's written many books, I thought. Yeah, he's so. written many, many books. Yeah. You know, here's, a, here's a thought about this, I, if, if I may. just I've got one more slide I want to share with Latter-day Saints and Barton. But Ballard, when he started publishing his uh, stuff on the founding and Lincoln, I was really disappointed in Desert Book. And I, I understand it's a business and they have a model. I, I get all that. I understand that they... They uh, promote faith promoting, you know, books. I, that's fine. I don't have an issue with that. The only time I ever have an issue with faith promotion is when they couch it as scholarship and it's not. 
So, but it has its place as, as devotional works, as we would say. But I was disappointed with Desert Book because for a couple of reasons. Number one, this is so far out there. It's just crazy. I mean, crazy stuff. I mean, clearly the product of an undisciplined mind drawing the most dubious conclusions. And then secondly, um, it's not helpful to the Latter-day Saint community, right? Because people start to believe this nonsense. Mm -hmm. And I remember his Lincoln book came out when it came out. And, you know, the gist of it is, is that Lincoln, you know, influenced or was influenced by the Book of Mormon, right? And my friend who's a leading Lincoln scholar, his name is Matthew Pinsker and teaches at a big school back East, one of the nation's leading Lincoln scholars. And I wrote him a note, an email, and I said, Matt, there's this great Lincoln book that you really need to look at. And <laughs> it'll change everything about your scholarship. <laughs> oh, you, you set were wrong. him up. <laughs> and I sent him, I sent him the link to, to Tim Ballard's book. And he said, he said, he wrote back, what the hell are these Mormons doing? I know. <laughs> So it was kind of yeah. a little chuckle moment, but you know, it's one thing to to do um, to promote something as fiction, Gerald Lund's books, for example, right? And you know, when you call something fiction, and, and the saints will will take it seriously, you know, his fictional series, um, you know, he, Gerald Lund can't control how people read his fiction. It's clearly mm -hmm. fiction. He he lets people know it's fiction. Yeah, it's historical fiction. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the saints they will still go back that. to various church sites and they'll ask about characters, you know, yep. where did that character live? You know, yep. and, the, and the poor missionary, the senior missionary who's at the church site, they've heard this before and they have to say, they're not real. <laughs> so that's okay. That's just way, that's how people read your work. But that's not Tim Ballard. He's he's really he qualifies things. Right. But he says that sometimes they don't have enough evidence or maybe it's a little sketchy. But and he knows darn well he's playing off of one's ignorance. And it really works well because people believe in this nonsense. They're not they're not trained in there's no shred of evidence at all for any of this stuff. So anyway, um, the last thought is to come full circle here as we end today um, with the slides that in August of last year, there is a group in Utah uh, that's co-chaired by Tad Callister, a mm -hmm. general authority emeritus. Um, and the door, the group's called Why Love America. And so he's he was touting it as a nonpartisan group of Utahns who are trying to promote a love for the Constitution. And of course, I'm always suspicious when I read things like this, because what that really means is it's a particular view of the Constitution we're promoting, and it's really not nonpartisan, especially when you look at the people behind it. There's an election denier part of it. There's a couple of John Burt Society members, and there's there's nobody with different views that are a part of this. And he doesn't have to go very far. There are plenty of Latter-day Saints, particularly at BYU Law School, who have uh, views on the Constitution that are starkly at odds with his, but he clearly wants to avoid those people, but he's pretending it's nonpartisan. Well, anyway, so as he's talking about his uh, group, Why Love America, he tried to schedule these so-called nonpartisan Constitution meetings in LDS uh, worship houses, including the Bountiful Regional Center in North Salt Lake. That's the building uh, Ballard built. Elder Ballard built. That is that building. Is that right? right? Okay. Yeah. Yep. 
Good that the know. church bought off of him. It was going to be a TV it show went bankrupt, uh, thing, yeah. and then Did it you... went bankrupt, and the church bought it off of him. Well, the church had <laughs> they the made, members. They made the stakes it. buy it off. Yeah. Of they him. made the yeah. members purchase it to bail him out. Yeah, it was another one of his failed business ventures. So, oh, wow. a side note, yes. <laughs> now, this is—is is this Elder Ballard or Tim Ballard? Elder, Elder Ballard. Ballard. Oh, another okay. one of his failed business yeah. ventures, where he was going to build this giant hall, course, where they would have Elder all kinds Ballard of events. Was... Wow. supporting Tim Ballard. So they're all related. Know, they're it's all, all related. It yeah. all ties yeah. together. Yeah. <laughs> oh, poor Elder Ballard. Wasn't one of his finer moments. <laughs> no, unfortunately. One um, of many not finer moments, unfortunately. Oh, <laughs> but uh so a couple of Latter-day Saints complained about um mm -hmm. when they learned that that uh Tad Callister and his group were bringing in David Barton as their expert. And they complained, just like I mentioned, they said, did you know that his book, Jefferson Lies, was mm -hmm. so bad they pulled it? Mm -hmm. This guy is a right-wing hack. And that's when some of the church leaders decided to say, you know, look, we, we can't use our church meeting houses for these kinds of things. And it's the same thing that the John Burt Society did back in the day. They were claiming to be nonpartisan, which is laughable. It's the same thing that the Freeman Institute back in the 70s mm -hmm. did. And then the national morphed into the National Constitution Center. So a lot of people in the Latter-day Saint community for decades have been talking about, you know, this is nonpartisan. When the truth is, you always look at the people behind it and you realize it's truly not nonpartisan. These are people with a particular viewpoint. And the viewpoint, of course, is, is that this is founded as a Christian nation. And uh, just, I'll say this and I'll, you know, uh, conclude this part of, of the just this little presentation, but... The founding fathers, um, there's no doubt they recognize the need for religion. There's no question about that because the country is religious. But to argue that it privileged one particular form of Christianity is just not supported by evidence. And the thing that I always like to say is, is that there are at least 300 different Christian groups at the nation's founding, and they have different viewpoints about a lot of different things. And uh, Catholics would be one of them, right? So for them to, for folks today to argue that this is a Christian nation, that's really, what they're really saying is it's a Protestant Christian nation in an ought to privilege Protestant Christians. Because if you threw Mormons into the group or Jehovah's Witnesses, they clearly would be minority religions and they would not be part of this, you know, uh, view of the founding. So I don't find it persuasive. And it does matter in how we view our founding because our public policies are tied into these views. This isn't just an academic exercise that I would do with my students. It really does matter because if you do believe that this is a Christian founding and the founding fathers were all Christians, then it simply means that we would privilege certain religious groups today at the expense of others. And that is clearly not the vision that was supported in the constitution. Amen. All right. Amen. There you go. He said, amen. No, everything you said is, is so spot on. And as I'm looking down through the rest of this article, I'm reminded of um, that group uh, that they mentioned here in the article, Why I Love America, right? And this is a group that's, you know, election deniers, and they are set up to teach Americans or Mormons about the Constitution and the role of founding fathers. And there was a letter from an area presidency that was written endorsing this group. So church and state in Utah is a whole different ballgame. Of course, we know that. And and I also push back on the whole Deseret Book thing. Deseret Book 
The church knows what's in Deseret Book. They either support it or they get rid of it. We have many situations where things have been pulled for different reasons. People speaking out or on social media, things are pulled. I'm thinking of a, a program that was supposed to teach um, understanding of different races, and it was pulled right away when the person who'd written it came out against the musket fire uh, talk. So what I'm saying is by allowing Tim Ballard's books in there, they know what they're letting their members read, and it works very well with the message that they are trying to portray. So they're not directly perhaps saying it, but they're allowing this information out. What do you think, Landon? I, it's almost like they appropriated the founding fathers <laughs> and, and and made them their own, just like putting Moroni in a tent of George Washington. It's really frustrating. I, I, I guess that wall of separation that you said Jefferson talked about, I I don't really think of it as a wall. I think of it as one of those gates, you know, at an amusement park that you could walk out of Revolving, and you can't go yeah. back in. <laughs> it, it seems like religion can go all they want into the state yeah. and just meddle all they want. But the state seems to be completely hands off. We don't want to touch anything that is that is church. You guys don't pay taxes. Don't do this. Don't do that. We don't want anything to do with you. They're completely hands off. So it seems to be more of a one-way uh, gate to me than a than a wall that separates mm -hmm. the two where they can't you know and and I know there's laws that say that that you know churches can't support political endeavors but all they do is form pack political packs and mm -hmm. funnel the money through that and say it's not a religion meddling in it it's their pack so uh, it's definitely not a not a wall uh, as you say but th this was great I really enjoyed yeah. this. Uh, to really get an understanding, uh, like we said, uh, we were trying to identify, you know, who were the deists, who were the, who were the more mm -hmm. Christian, uh, and and it was amazing how many of the deists were really the top guys that you think about uh, seemed to be to be the deists uh, for the most part. So it was very interesting, and you would see where a deist would be very interested in saying, "I don't want all of this hokey mm -hmm. pokey messing with our constitution. <laughs> uh, we want." firm, reasonable laws that mm -hmm. make sense and that are good governance. And that's why it's worked uh, for so long. Uh, religion running a state always gets to be messy. Uh, As we know, happens. living in Utah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you guys are unique. <laughs> We're a little unique. Well, I mean, what would you say the answer is? Um, something struck me that you said where a lot of people don't really know the true information. They can't tell the difference between a bogus quote or something that's real. I mean, where I guess people like you writing books about the true history. I wish there were a way to get that in the hands of anybody, especially perhaps my LDS family, and, and say, look, let's just learn a little bit about what really happened. And still, instead of through this, I don't know, sort of a sieve of Mormonism, where Mormonism comes out on top, and it's all related. I mean, you really have to understand the real history to kind of inoculate yourself against some of these crazy ideas. Well, I think, you know, I know it's easier said than done, but you have to put aside faith commitments mm. that you have to prove that the founding fathers are inspired or they're this, they're that. You just sort of, you know, that's fine if you want to believe that. But um, I always I always try to I'm a university professor, so I want my students to engage in evidence and we all have our beliefs and that's fine, especially religious beliefs. That's all good. But we do need to make to look at the evidence. And if we can put aside faith commitments and just look at some of the evidence objectively and recognize that to use a sort of a core, there's the core of the apple here, which is the founding. And then we have layers to the core over time. 
And too often people will equate the layers with the founding. Like, for example, you know, the founding fathers are Christian. Look at in God we trust on the coins, right? Mm -hmm. We talked about that. That's a Cold War thing. Yeah. They were dead when that happened. Yeah. And so you got to go back to the, the founding. And also, we don't we like to think that um a lot of people like to think that it focused more on consensus than conflict. And but the truth is the founding fathers were just as conflicted about religion as we are today. They didn't have all the answers and they they debated fiercely the role of religion, just like we do today. But a lot of us don't like to think about that, that somehow they gave us this magical creation and they were Christians. And I think a lot of it is with this re religious mythology that gets developed in the 19th century. It's not just the Mormons that create it. It's a lot of Christian groups that are calling George Washington inspired, that he's akin to God. And the Constitution is like scripture. Mm -hmm. Whenever I hear this, the Constitution is like scripture language. I, I always think of the slave clauses. Hmm. You know, oh, really? It's a pro-slavery document, right? And I don't think that the God of the universe was condoning the, you know, enslavement of our human beings. So it's a document and it's, um, I, I love the founding fathers. I enjoy reading them. I've written about them. My dissertation was on a founding father, doctoral dissertation. I've taught the constitution, legal history for a long time now, but you really have to go back to some of the original sources. And you also have to, if you don't want to look at their own language, that's fine. Most people don't do that, but read a book that's reliable and I know that's hard. You won't find a reliable book on the Constitution in Deseret Book because their purpose mm -hmm. is devotional history. Right. You cannot read the devotional stuff. That's not the place to go. Years ago, when they had a bookstore at my alma mater, they got BYU had the greatest bookstore in the state of Utah for a <laughs> lot of years. And their their bookstore is just a shadow of a former self today. But anyway, there used to be great books on the Constitutional Convention in the bookstore, but it was, they were in the history section, not in the devotional mm -hmm. section. Mm -hmm. And so I think the best thing to do would be to ask people for recommendations that you may trust, obviously an academic. And I want to be clear about something that there are some really good conservative scholars on the founding, right? Sometimes we politicize everything and we only want to read whether they're a liberal or a conservative, but I'm thinking about one of the greatest uh, scholars of the founding, he's now dead, but he was definitely a conservative. Ronald Reagan appointed, um, Forrest McDonald is his name, um, appointed Ronald Reagan, the Thomas Jefferson lecturer uh, in 1987 at the Bicentennial. And that's the highest government award in the humanities. And so obviously a conservative scholar, uh, Reagan wouldn't have appointed a liberal. But Forrest McDonald is a Pulitzer Prize winning author or finalist. He didn't win it, but he was a finalist. And he wrote a wonderful book that I still look at today and just admire. He's definitely conservative. And you can see that in some of the points of emphasis that he makes about states' rights and how he interprets the founding. And even though I can disagree as a liberal about um, some of his interpretations, I know where he's coming from. He's doing it responsibly. And he's a heck of a good scholar. And I have some of my conservative students um, read Forrest McDonald. There's some other people today. A guy at Stanford Law School named Michael McDonald has um, used to teach at the University of Utah School of Law years ago. But Michael McDonald um, is one of the leading First Amendment scholars on church and state. And he's quite conservative. 
So I don't want to get, you know, polarized here because there are good, good people on both right. sides. And right. those are the kinds of things we need to be recommending to, to people, not, you know, hacks like Barton or, or Ballard, Tim Ballard, <laughs> who aren't, who aren't trained and not. Who aren't trained. Yeah. Right. No, this is great. And we're going to link, of course, all your things that you've written in the show notes so that people can take a look at that because there's a lot of good stuff there from a trusted source, our friend Matt. So, <laughs> so thank you so much. This has been really interesting. Um, thank you, Landon. And thank you, Dr. Harris. This has been incredible. And please, everybody comment. Let us know what you think about all of this. We covered so many different um, kind of facets of this, but I think it's a conversation that will continue. I think especially as things heat up in our election year, right? It's all coming to a head, so it's going to be great. Um, please like and subscribe to Mormonish Podcast. And if you'd like to be made aware when new episodes come out, you can hit that notification bell. If you would like to financially support the podcast, we have links in the show notes to PayPal and Venmo. And for our listeners, we have a link to mormonishpodcast.org. Our listeners or viewers can go there to help financially support the podcast. And we really appreciate everybody that does. Thank you so much. So again, thank you, Matt. It was wonderful. And thank you, Landon. And we'll say goodbye for now from Mormonish. Thank you, everybody. See you next time. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.